This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shabbat Shalom. I want to reintroduce you to a character in the Torah that we often don't talk about, and yet it courses through our story again and again. This character is defined by its contradictory powers, its ability to live in two realms simultaneously, ever-present yet concealed, life-giving, and dangerous, rife with symbolism and yet as real as it gets. I'm speaking, you might have guessed, about blood. Now I know it's not the kind of sermon topic that when you wake up in the morning and you're deciding, should I come to Shul, should I not come to Shul, you think to yourself, you know what, if the rabbi talks about blood, it'll be worth it. <laughs> Honestly, maybe, maybe the opposite. But I want to make the claim today that in the world of the Torah, blood is actually one of the ways that we talk about life and death. It's part of the perpetually imperfect vocabulary we grasp for to make sense of the thin line between living and dying. In the fluidity of blood, we wrestle with the possibility that the source of life can also be a sign of death. And that, I hope, is a fitting topic for a sermon. Here we go. Blood, a brief biblical biography. <laughs> Blood arrives on the scene tragically early in our story. The world has just been created. The Garden of Eden is barely in the rearview mirror when two brothers, Cain and Abel, turn against each other in violent conflict. God calls out to Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood, it seems, has a voice, a story to tell. It cries out when Abel no longer can, his life drained from his body, absorbed by the earth. Blood communicates death again in Genesis in the heart-wrenching story of Joseph and his brothers. Rather than admit to their father that they sold his son into slavery, the brothers feign his death by dipping Joseph's multicolored coat into goat's blood and presenting it to their father with a question brimming with cruel implications. Does this belong to your son? Jacob knew that this blood was the sign of Joseph's apparent death. In Exodus, God turns the water of the Nile into blood, makat dam, the first plague, and then on the night before the Exodus, the Israelites are instructed to kill a lamb and spread its blood on their doorposts. So the angel of death which would know which homes to pass over on their violent mission. Here, blood is simultaneously the medium of plague and deliverance, a paradoxical symbol granting life to some and death to others. The dual function of blood 
is even more pronounced as we move into Leviticus. And its detailed accounts of the sacrificial system and laws around ritual purity and impurity. Now, I should mention that neither sacrifices nor ritual purity are operative paradigms in the Judaism we practice today, but they are central to the world of our sacred text. And I want to stress that ritual purity is not, by and large, equated with sinful behavior. Rather, it's a fact of life, a part of nature that people and objects routinely and unavoidably contract impurity. It's not a permanent state, and there are rituals in place to return to a state of purity. The Torah cites several causes of tum'ah, ritual impurity, contact with a dead animal or a human corpse, bodily secretions, and most relevant to this conversation, blood. Specifically, bleeding that occurs during and after childbirth and menstrual bleeding. The biblical scholar Baruch Levine suggests that the Torah uses the category of impurity to deal with, quote, conditions that are life-threatening. Now, there's undoubtedly a mix here of superstition, primitive science, taboo, and yes, good intention. Coming into contact with a corpse is both physically dangerous because of the contagions and in the Torah's worldview, spiritually dangerous, that perhaps death could somehow cling to you or to your soul in some way. The resulting state of ritual impurity necessitates cleansing rituals, including abstaining from physical contact with others and immersion in a mikvah, a ritual bath. Even if quite different from our own worldview, there's something relatable about both physical and spiritual safeguards around contact with a corpse. But what's the connection between blood and impurity? So to answer this question, we have to understand that in the Torah's worldview, blood is life. Nefesh habasar badam. We're going to read those words next week. Literally, the life of flesh is in the blood. Blood sits at the nexus of life and death. When it flows through the body, we're granted life, but when it leaves the body by force or by natural rhythm, dangers abound. To the biblical audience, death and life are intertwined. Maternal loss of blood during and after childbirth would have been a real danger, interpreted simultaneously as a physical and spiritual depletion of life force. So too, menstrual bleeding was understood as life leaving the body, necessitating a ritual intervention to shift states. But just as blood is identified as one of the sources of impurity, a substance that brings us into dangerous contact with death, it also plays the opposite role. It gives new life, purifies, grants new beginnings. The blood of sacrificed animals has the capacity to purge the impurity that clings to both the Israelite people and our sacred space. Blood is sprinkled on the altar to cleanse it, on priests to prepare them for their encounter with the sacred, on the leper as part of his healing and re-entry ceremony. The sacrificial system employs blood as a vehicle 
for expressing contrition, gratitude, healing, wholeness. Through blood, life is restored. Okay, what do we do with all of this? Is this just an outdated mode of perceiving the world? In certain ways, yes. Yes. And I'm not advocating that we take on the biblical system of purity, and I'm not proposing that we fully adopt their definitions of what blood is or how it defines us, but I'm also not willing to throw it all away. Because I think it has something to teach us both in the particulars and about what it means to live acutely aware of the dialogue between life and death. Certainly our understanding of biology has come a long way since the Torah, but in powerful ways, blood continues to be a marker that straddles the lines between health and sickness, hope and despair, life and death. Anyone here awaiting the results of a blood test knows fully the anxiety of wondering what your blood will tell you. For my dear friends here battling cancer, how deeply you understand what it means for your blood to be working with you or against you. And as a cis man, I can only begin to understand what it feels like for those who are trying to get pregnant or those who already are to see blood when your heart and body yearns otherwise. And in its capacity to be one thing and the opposite, sometimes you pray for the appearance of blood and thank God for the ways life can continue as is through another cycle. As some of you know, our four-year-old son, Matan, was born with a blood disorder called hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. He's now healthy and safe and probably wants to give you some Mazel Tov candy, as he calls it. But those first few weeks in the NICU were terrifying. The doctors explained to us that essentially Matan's body was rejecting his own blood. He was so severely anemic that the doctor said he didn't have a drop to spare to determine what blood type he needed for a transfusion. So they guessed, and they guessed right. By the end of the first week, after multiple transfusions and a partial volume exchange, he was gaining strength. Six weeks later, now home from the hospital, we gathered for his bris. As part of that ceremony, you recite a verse from Ezekiel. Which could mean you shall live in your blood or you shall live despite your blood. That day, his body coursing with the blood of complete strangers who had donated this gift of life and a bit of his own blood now safely being produced those words hit home. It's the agent of life, and sometimes it can take everything away. The truth is, we all face these moments. 
We encounter the places in time where life and death are but a breath apart, where it becomes abundantly clear that we've been standing on a balance beam all along. These moments change everything about us. They change how and for whom we live. They shift how we see the world. They rip open our hearts to better understand how beautiful and scary it all is. As painful as this might be, it's the presence and prospect of death in our midst that makes life so precious. It's the awareness that there's a thin line separating it all that summons us back into life. It's remembering that the lungs that breathe with you, the heart that beats for you, the blood that sustains you, defines both the beginning and the end of our stories. They belong to each other. Just as death belongs to life and grief belongs to love. You see, blood never stopped crying out to us. It's never stopped trying to remind us just how precious and precarious it all is. How sometimes it purifies and sometimes it defiles. How sometimes it represents life and sometimes it represents death. And I know it's hard to hold it all, the gravity. But that's what the Torah is asking of us. And ultimately, it's the gift it's trying to give us by saying, actually, we have some ways to help you hold it all. Rituals evolve. It isn't sacrifices and cleansing anymore. It's shiva and baby namings. Silent meditation and communal song, it's wearing white on your wedding day and white on your day of death. It's visiting the sick and benching Gomel. It's feasting and fasting. It's believing that our lives can make a difference. Your life makes a difference. How precious and precarious it all is. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.